By the end of this sermon, you will have officially listened to 40 sermons throughout the book of Hebrews. In that time, we've covered, even if briefly, some of the Bible's deepest doctrines. We touched upon doctrines like election and predestination, the Trinity, the sovereignty of God, union with Christ, the perseverance of the saints, the communion of the saints, the church Catholic, total depravity, irresistible grace, grace alone salvation, justification by faith alone, divine impassibility, replacement theology and dispensationalism, the descent of Christ to the place of the dead, sanctification, substitutionary atonement, and even the patriarchy and slavery. And so we conclude the book with what is called a postscript, which is just any afterthought of a letter uh, that has a brief goodbye. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's actually where our little abbreviation PS comes from. If you've ever written a letter and you've concluded it with PS, that stands for postscript. So the final sermon we have in Ephesians is Paul's PS. Now typically in human, purely human letters, the PS doesn't usually contain a whole lot of super important information. Otherwise it would have been included in the body of the letter. And to a certain degree, you could read Paul's PS and see it as not being all that important. Do we really need to preach a sermon on it? But we need to remember two things. Number one, Paul was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. This is one of the smartest theological minds to ever live, so no words of his should ever go unnoticed. But more importantly than that, Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is an inspired PS, and so it is certainly worthy for us to study and to preach and to seek to understand. And I believe that because it was written by Paul's brilliant mind under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe that this PS, whether he intended to or not, is dripping and filled with some of the key themes that we have already learned throughout the book. So would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 through 24. And when you are there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter... 6 verses 21 through 24 thus saith the Lord so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Paul's postscript really contains two parts to it. There's a logistical part and then a benediction. First, he gives some final logistics. He tells them that all other personal information, which has been left out of the letter, Tychicus can answer all of their questions. That will be communicated by a man named Tychicus. Now, Tychicus is mentioned actually in many places in the New Testament. And every time he is always mentioned as a faithful servant to the Apostle Paul. He's mentioned as a missionary who was sent to preach the gospel. And it's even possible, there's some debate about this, but given some of the language of the text surrounding him, he may have himself even been a pastor. 
the, in, in this final greeting, what this reference to Tychicus does is it informs us that he was likely the one who, if you remember, Paul wrote this from prison. And he likely wrote this letter combined. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians together. He wrote them probably from the same prison cell. And Tychicus was probably the one who delivered these to all the churches and was even probably the one who read it and preached it to the church as he got there. He was sort of the communicant or the uh, courier, if you will, of Paul's letters. And so I, I just, just briefly, praise God for men like Tychicus. Uh, so Paul gives some logistics, right? If, if you have any other questions as to what's going on with me while I sit in this prison cell, what's going on with the apostles, just talk to Tychicus. He, he will inform you and let you know that all is well. And then he concludes with a benediction. A benediction is to, to call or wish divine grace upon the people of God. And this is a very common thing that the biblical authors do all throughout the Bible as they end their letters or end a psalm or they end some important um, notice with a benediction. And so we see in that then the scripture sort of implicitly teaching us that it is fitting to conclude worship with a benediction. And that's why we do it in our service. That's why we conclude every single Sunday with a benediction. Because we don't believe that that's our idea of how to end a service. We think that's God's idea of how to end a service. He has patterned that for us. So we have in this postscript some logistical work and then a benediction. But as I said, I think a close examination of it will reveal that Paul's, the theology throughout the book of Ephesians is, is incidentally contained and bursting at the seams in this passage. And there are three primary themes, things that we have already looked at extensively in the book of Ephesians that I think subtly make their way to the surface in Paul's final goodbye. The first one is this idea of the communion of the saints. A phrase known in many of our creeds, the communion of the saints. Look at verses 21 and 22 with me again. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. One of the major themes in the book of Ephesians is what we call ecclesiology, which is just a fancy word for the study of the church. Anytime you're learning about the church in the Bible, you're doing ecclesiology. And we learned about the universal church, the bride of Christ, all throughout this book, especially in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And whenever we discuss the doctrine of the church, it's nearly impossible to do that without discussing the related doctrine of the communion of the saints. This is the doctrine that all believers in every age have a bond, have sort of a mystical sweet communion, as we just sang, with one another. We are fellow members of the body of Christ. Both in heaven and on earth, we have a union in Christ together. Now, the primary way that we experience the communion of the saints, though our communion goes beyond the walls of Redeemer, but nonetheless, the primary way that we benefit from the communion of the saints is in our local churches. It is in our church experience, it is in our fellowship together, that we receive this constant community and love and care and encouragement. And I think we see that here in Paul's goodbye. Do you, do you see how intimate 
Paul's goodbye is? How personal it is? Did you see the way Paul was united to the Ephesian church in an incredibly intimate, personal way? I, I say that, and I, I see three different reasons why I see Paul having an, a friendship and intimacy with these people. The first one is that they obviously know each other. I know that sounds a little bizarre. Uh, certainly there would have been some people in this church that Paul didn't know because he had left and gone to prison and more people joined. So there were some strangers. But generally speaking, Paul knows who he's writing to. He, he, has, he has people and names in mind. And, and why that might sound really, really obvious, let me suggest to you it's not. We live in a day and age where there are hundreds of churches across our nation where it is nearly impossible for any of those parishioners to talk to their pastor. And when they do, they go through a secretary, they go through uh, a planner, and they have to have questions pre-submitted. We live in a day and age of celebrity pastors, pastors that are more popular than some movie stars. You think it's easy for those people just to approach their famous pastor and talk to them? You think when Joel Osteen is preaching to tens of thousands of people, he knows their faces and their names? There's something sweet in this text. These people know their pastor. They know Paul. And they care about him. They're worried about him. They're concerned about him. And Paul knows them well enough to know they're probably worried. They're probably concerned about me. I'm sure you are, so that's why I sent Tychicus. He can let you know what you're praying about every day because I know you and you know me and we love each other. This is why I get so excited for the things in our church that encourage fellowship and friendship. Our guys' nights that we try to do monthly or once every two or three months, however often it's played out. The women just started up this women's fellowship on a monthly basis. We have this upcoming Advent soup supper that I'm really looking forward to. I'm excited to announce at family time. These are wonderful opportunities for us to get to know each other at a more intimate level. But more than just this general friendship, intimate knowledge uh, that I see in this text, their communion is demonstrated through service. Primarily, we see that in Tychicus himself. He is a shining example of what a faithful church member looks like. He was so interested in serving Paul and in serving the Ephesians that he was willing to serve both parties with his gifts. And make no mistake about it, he was not sending an email. He wasn't texting, hey guys, Paul's, Paul's all good, we're okay. He's walking and journeying miles and miles and miles in the midst of a culture that is actively persecuting his pastor. You don't think that reflects on him? You don't think that makes him a little nervous? My pastor just got thrown in jail. He might be put to death, and I'm his best friend carrying messages around to his people. He's put his life on the line for the Ephesians. He put his time to sacrifice for the Ephesians. He is walking around in the northern parts past the Middle East, for miles to serve these people. We know that intimacy and service are a huge way that we bless each other. We we, in other words, we demonstrate our community by serving one another. And I, I won't go on, on a list, but I, I just can't tell you all of the ways that people in this church have surrounded me and helped me when I needed it. Behind the scenes, nobody knows about it. And I know that you all can speak the same. And so I would just encourage you to press on in that good work. Continue to serve and to help each other however opportunity arises, however your gifts are able to. We show our community through service. 
However, there's a third reason why I see the communion of saints here, and that's because their communion and their service ultimately leads to the the broader, more important goal of encouragement. Look at verse 22. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Paul knows that we ultimately gather to work towards the end of encouraging one another. Encouragement is such a vital goal to our Christian experience. That's why even elsewhere in the scriptures, Hebrews 10 tells us that this is one of the benefits of not neglecting to gather. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is why we gather to encourage each other's hearts, to to prod us along in faithfulness as we await the coming of Christ. And so we show our communion through friendship, through service, and through encouragement. And, and, and notice what Paul does here. Sometimes encouragement is as simple as telling people that you're doing well. Right? That, that's, that's how Paul and Tychicus were encouraging these people. They, they were merely reporting a praise report. Hey, I know he's in prison, but don't worry. He's fine. All things are well. So I want to encourage you, please don't be afraid or timid or shy to tell people when things are going well with you. This is part of the reason why when we do family time, we don't limit that to just prayer requests. We want praises as well. You can can encourage your church by just simply telling us how God is blessing you. By, By simply just telling us that things are going well, you can really, really encourage people. Paul was anxious to encourage the church by just sharing his news with them. And so I just encourage you, share good news with your church. Whether that's in family time or in your personal time, it's not bragging. It's good to share the way God is making our lives go well. This is something that we want to rejoice in together. When good things happen to you, I want to rejoice with you. We are one body. So when one of us hurts, we all hurt. But when one of us is blessed, we're all blessed. All right, let's celebrate the grace of God in our lives together. So the first thing Paul's postscript reminds us of is the communion of saints. That we have a need for the community of the body of Christ. But it reminds us of another crucial theme that we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians. And that is divine grace. A huge theme in the book of Ephesians is our need for the grace of God. Look at verses 23 and 24 with me. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Here and all throughout the letter, we are reminded of our desperate need for the grace of God. Every good thing we possess comes from the grace of God. This is very apparent in the book of Ephesians, but especially in the first two chapters of the book, wherein we learn that our salvation is entirely from start to end a work of the mighty grace of the triune God. And that is why Paul, in his benediction, he wishes that the church would continue to receive grace from God and from Christ. And what grace specifically do we need? What, what, what is it that we are in need of, according to Paul's benediction, from God and from Christ? Well, 
he lists three things, though I'm going to make an argument it's really two. He lists peace to the brothers and love with faith and grace. I guess you could say four, but these are all grace, right? This is all the things we receive from God. He primarily lists peace, love, and faith. That's how we receive grace. Certainly we need peace, right? We need peace with God. We need peace with men. We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need our church to be united, not divided. These two things are crucial to our health, to our lives, to our salvation. We also need faith and love. And this is what I'm arguing. I I think you should see this as one grace and not two. I think Paul is qualifying the kind of faith that we need God to give us. We need a loving faith. And, and I say that because we, we see Paul qualify faith throughout the New Testament this way. Uh, here's just one example from Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In the Bible, there's lots of different kinds of faith. Some faith is saving, some faith is not. There's natural faith, there's spiritual faith, there's weak faith, there's strong faith. So Paul is qualifying, what do we need from God and from Christ? We need a loving faith. We need a faith that loves. They are nearly synonymous here. But honestly, regardless of how you slice it, the point is is that we need to receive these things as gifts. They don't come from us. They come from, as the text says, God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These are divine gifts that we receive. And what is another good word for a divine gift that you receive? Grace. That's grace. We need a loving faith from God. We need to love God. We need to love each other. And this is a grace. This is a work of God among us. And by the way, let me just remind you that the kind of gifts that God gives, the kind of loving faith that God gives is top shelf. It's, it's high quality, high octane faith, if you will. Because notice how Paul uh, qualifies it in verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. He just got done telling us that love is something we receive from God and from Jesus and the love that you receive can't be corrupted. This is the best kind of gift. This is a love that can't be corrupted, meaning it cannot decay. It is immortal. Theologians will sometimes refer to this as the grace of perseverance. You see that is the phrase used in the medieval period. In the Reformed tradition, they called it the perseverance of the saints. In Scripture, as we discussed, there are natural ways that men can believe in Christ. There is even a natural love that people can, of their own strength, put in Christ. But that faith, that love, as Jesus shows us in the parable of the sower, it can't last. It can't last through persecution. It can't last through hard times. We need a faith from Jesus that is incorruptible. Many men have to borrow a language from Paul, have made shipwreck of their natural faith. But the kind of faith that God gives, again, it's top shelf. It is incorruptible. It is a lasting faith. God, Paul here ends by reminding us that we are in constant need of the good, incorruptible grace from God. Now, that might sound confusing because after all, the, uh, uh, theoretically, these people have already received right? Faith and love. Haven't they already received these things? Don't they already possess these gifts? Why is Paul wishing for them to get what they've already got? 
But what we need to see, especially throughout Scripture, is that we are in the constant need of these things to grow in them, to increase in them. We don't think of grace as a one-time deposit. We think of God perpetually sustaining and giving and aiding and nourishing and comforting us by his grace. We are always in need of his grace. And that's why throughout scripture we can see things like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I have faith, but I need it to grow. We see in the gospel of Luke, Lord, increase our faith. You've given us faith. You've given us love. Make it grow. So I don't know where you stand in here today. Maybe you're an unbeliever and you've not received the grace of God. But here I am calling God to show you the light of Christ, to receive his grace for the first time. Or maybe you are a believer already and you have it. The word of God here is calling upon God to increase your love, to increase the grace. We are in desperate need of the grace of God, and we see that all throughout the letter. But there's a third and final element that I think, a theme that we've already discussed that I think showed up in the PS, and that is union with Christ. Uh, I, I was struck, I knew this beforehand, but especially preaching through it for the first time, Ephesians is a remarkably Christocentric book. This, this whole book is about Jesus. All throughout, especially chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul very intentionally centers all of God's redemptive activity in Christ. Paul is very clear in explicit and redundant terms that Jesus is the centerpiece of history, of salvation, and of all creation. Paul continues that Christocentric, that Christ-centered emphasis, even in his PS. Look at verses 23 and 24 again. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Do you see how Paul just cannot disconnect honoring God from honoring the Son? Paul is very clear to remind us that that grace is not just mediated from God to us. Grace must come through our mediator. You will never receive the grace of God if you're not receiving it both from Him and from Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. All divine grace is channeled only in and through Christ. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. If you do not have Jesus Christ in your life, you do not have God's grace in your life. Jesus himself makes this crystal clear. He says that all judgment has been given to the Son in verse 22. Why? John 5, 23. So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. These are amazing words. No one short of deity could possibly say this. Jesus here is saying, you must treat me exactly the same as you treat God. He's either asking you to be an idolater or he is God and he is worthy of the same reverence, worship, and honor as God. Those are the only two options. Jesus is an idolater or he's fully God. He says... The Father has given judgment to the Son so that you might know that I am worthy of the same honor, the same worship, the same love that God the Father is. And if you reject that, if you say, no, I'm going to keep loving the Father, but I don't believe all these weird Jesus is both God and man philosophy. I I don't want Jesus. Just give me Yahweh. 
Jesus says, once you depart from me, you lose the Father too. If you do not honor the Father, or if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father. And his disciples knew this point very well. That's why John reminds us of this in 1 John 2.23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Because of the Trinity, because of their shared nature, they come together. You don't get one without the other. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. And he reminds us in this. Who does he tell us in verse 24? Who are the people of God? How do you measure, how do you know whether you are truly belonging to the people of God? It's if you love Jesus. That's how we know who the people of God are. It's those who love Jesus, those who receive God's grace in and through Christ. That's what we mean by union with Christ. There is no grace, there is no glory, there is no salvation unless you belong to Christ. Christ is everything. We have nothing if we do not have union with Christ. So in light of all this, let me conclude with these three things. If you, if you take anything away from this long 40-sermon series through Ephesians, please take with you these three important themes. Number one, the Christian church is vitally important. You need the communion of her saints. Number two, we are in debt to God's grace for everything, but especially for salvation. We are completely dependent in all things on the grace of God. And number three, that Christ is everything. He is our everything. He is Lord. He is preeminent. He alone is where all the grace of God is dispensed. That Jesus Christ is the object of our undying love and affection. And he's worthy of every bit of it. So commune with the saints. Depend on the grace of God. And love Jesus Christ with an undying love. 